Georgia's DBHDD has an urgent health warning. One of every 10 counterfeit pills contain fentanyl, a powerful and very deadly drug. Pills from friends or dealers are unsafe, and one pill can cause an overdose. More info at opioidresponse.info. Thank you all for being here for another edition of Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. Um, of course, it's a holiday week. We know Thanksgiving is coming up on Thursday, and uh, I know people are getting set to celebrate and looking forward to time with family and friends. Um, but the fact of the matter is that there's sobering news uh, that we're going to discuss as we begin the week. And um, you know, maybe by Thursday, we can have digested all of the things that have been going on and find time to relax and rest. I certainly hope that's the case. But today, we're going to want to start. We're going to want to talk about the Kyle Rittenhouse verdict late last week. He was found uh, not guilty on all charges, and especially as it relates to the trial unfolding, continuing right now in Brunswick with the three men who were accused of murdering uh, Maude Arbery. Uh, on trial down there. There are so many similarities uh, to the case and some differences as well, but we do expect we're going to have closing arguments presumably today. The judge perhaps today will also charge the jury. There's no way of knowing what the timing is of when actually the jury will get the case. But one of the things I want to talk about with the panel today is how they think what happened in the Rittenhouse trial may have an impact on what goes on down in Brunswick, Georgia. So with all that in mind, let's get right to our panel today. Riley Bunch is with us. She's public policy reporter at GPB News. Welcome, Riley. Thanks for being here today. Thanks for having me, Bill, ahead of a nice holiday weekend. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Emma Hurt who is a reporter for Axios Atlanta, which is a great new... I said this uh, when you joined us uh, the first time, Emma, and I'm very glad you're back. We really are glad Axios has set up shop in Atlanta, and it makes sense that you would be here. We have become, in Georgia, one of the centers of the political universe, Emma. Definitely. You can't expand national coverage without expanding in Georgia. I'd yeah. say it's safe to say. Well, Thank th- you for having me back. Absolutely. And by the way, people can sign up and get your uh, your newsletters, your news uh, every day. How do they do that? Just Google Axios Atlanta, subscribe, and you'll get straight to our page. Terrific. Thank Pretty you. Easy. Thank you very much. Uh, professor Adrian Jones is back with us. Of course, she's a professor of political science at Morehouse College and also the director of the pre-law program there. Hi, Adrian. Thank you for being with us today. Good morning and good morning, everyone. And yes, uh, welcome to the holiday season. Uh, You said before the show, you're also getting set for an event uh, today. Morehouse is hosting a a debate this afternoon. You're going to have the mayoral runoff candidates uh, over uh, doing a debate uh, uh, for you today. We certainly will, along with John Eves, and who's running for Secretary of State, and Jason Dozier, who's running for City Council District 4. It will be a polite um, forum, moderated forum, where the candidates are asked about representation, what they want to do for Atlanta and the AUC, and um, 
you know, get our students motivated to participate. Well, I wish you well on that. Of course, the uh, runoff election just a little more than a week away at uh, this point. Tammy Greer, Professor Tammy Greer, joins us again today as well, Professor of Political Science at Clark Atlanta University. And you've already done forums uh, yourselves uh, at Clark Atlanta, Tammy. Yes, and we've had a great time and a great showing, and we really appreciate the candidates coming out and getting to uh, speak firsthand with our students. Well, um, we will look forward to hearing how the uh, mayoral campaigns unfold in this final week of uh, campaigning. Riley, let's get right to it. Uh, And let's start by pointing out the uh, news that Kyle Rittenhouse was found not guilty on every one of the charges against him from very, very uh, serious malice murder uh, to much lesser charges. But he was completely exonerated, and I don't think it is inappropriate to say he was acquitted because the jury uh, did, in fact, buy his attorney, Mark Richards' arguments that he shot and killed two people and wounded a third because he felt his own life was in jeopardy and needed to shoot in self-defense, right? Yeah, and, you know, hearing this verdict, I think a lot of the the people watching this case were pretty shocked, um, right, to hear this verdict. And and it caused a lot of outcry, especially on the heels of the social justice movements we saw uh, last year. Um, And it's interesting that the acquittal came on kind of that argument of self-defense, because this is something we're hearing in the parallel case um, down in Brunswick right now, the three men accused of killing Ahmad Arbery right there. Their main defense is self-defense as well. So we already have a verdict for this, this case um, in Wisconsin, and it, it, it might have ripple effects into the Arbery trial case. We, we just won't, we won't know. We'll have to see. Emma, you were down there in uh, Brunswick uh, last week, and, and of course, you know what Riley said, is that the defense, uh, especially when Travis McMichael was on the stand, or arguing that what what happened was in some ways when they were chasing down Ahmad Arbery, he turned on them and became, uh, in fact, a threat to them, perhaps grabbing at Travis McMichael's uh, shotgun. So absolutely, self-defense is going to play a big role in how the jury determines the outcome of this case. Yeah, and I think what's so interesting about it is that the sort of theme and the tone from inside the courtroom is so different from what's outside, especially when you think about race. Like the issue of race hasn't come up at all in the arguments inside the courtroom. And um, Asia Burns and Shadi Abu Saeed did a really good story about this in the in the AJC this weekend. But outside the courtroom, it's almost it's all about race. I mean, that is that is what is driving the emotion of protesters and, and people showing up um, to support to support Ahmaud Arbery's family. And so there's this really big disconnect between what the trial represents and what is actually being presented to the jury. And so that is a, is a tension that, that is, is kind of overhanging this. And it will change, right, because we have a federal hate crimes um, trial coming up in February where race will certainly play a, a major role. But in this case, ironically, it's not at all. Uh, Tammy and and Adrian, I'm curious how you both view that. I mean, it is certainly true that in the trial in Brunswick, uh, there were issues, legal issues, that prevented the prosecution from entering some uh, evidence that may have pointed to racial animus. The, The alleged remarks 
that Travis McMichael made after uh, Arbery was shot, in which he allegedly, Roddy uh, uh, Bryant, one of the other uh, uh, defendants in this, says he used a racial epithet uh, in pointing it at Arbery. That couldn't be entered because of the way the the trial unfolded. But the prosecution has avoided any other uh, reference to race in terms of this as well. Your thoughts, uh, Tammy and Adrian? So they should. Um, The prosecutor should. Um, And the reason the prosecution should avoid it is because of the makeup of the jury. Mm -hmm. So you don't have the the empathy um, in terms of the representation on the jury in order for that to make an impact, right? So if you had um, a more diverse jury, perhaps um, introducing some of those elements would have made sense. At the same time, right now, it doesn't make sense from an optic standpoint, as well as from a walking in someone's shoes standpoint to understand what that impact is. So I think that um, doing their best to make it such uh, made sense. And I think that it's important in order to keep the jury's eye on the issue, which is self-defense, which is different from whether or not um, these individuals participated in an assault murder um, that they should be held responsible for. I mean, part of the Rittenhouse issue is that the issue in court became self-defense and not what um, these other people were feeling from Kyle Rittenhouse. Riley? I think it's important also to talk about um, a a narrative that comes out of this self-defense, right? Is this um, the penalties for extremism, the penalties for these vigilante actions that we're seeing, which is also a striking comparison between the two cases, right? We have... um, white men coming to scenes with guns, you know, both claiming that they were going to help people, they were going to do things, right? But they came to the scene with firearms. And I think it's really interesting to see these play out in after you see after we talk about the scene that we saw at the January 6th insurrection and we see you know penalties come out of that is how does the court system respond to kind of more of these vigilante acts? You know, um, Emma, one of the things that I find interesting in terms of the Rittenhouse case, and it plays into all this, is that um, Mark Richards, who represented him, um, he does not like dealing with media. He didn't want to talk to media during the trial, but he did give an interview after the verdict came out. And he was he he said, look, there were people Rittenhouse was originally represented by Lynn Wood. And another attorney, and Lynn Wood, we know, is about as political an attorney as there is these days. He was deeply involved in trying to defend Trump uh, and, and to carry forward the, the legal case that there was fraud in the elections. Lynn Wood was dropped. Mark Richards came in and he said, I didn't want to have anything to do with politics in this case. That was no way to argue this case. It was strictly on the basis of whether Kyle Rittenhouse felt that his life was in jeopardy. And in, in that interview, he also um, basically really uh, came after Donald Trump Jr., who had sent out a tweet supporting a gun rights organization that wanted in the aftermath of the verdict to give Kyle Rittenhouse a new AR-15. 
Um, interesting, though, that the you know who would have known? Who knows how that trial would have played out if the Lynn Woods of the world had prevailed? <laughs> it, I mean, it, it really again it gets at how these these cases have taken on such big symbolism for some of these, the biggest issues that our society is facing right now, and yet the way our court system works, our justice system works, there's a, there's sort of a very narrow slice of it that's presented in court. And you have this tension, um, like almost two worlds. I and mean, being on the ground, it was so, it's so remarkable. And I'm sure Riley can attest, you're outside. This is what people are talking about. But as you're listening to the trial inside, it is like, it's almost like two different uh, cases in a way. And I think that the Rittenhouse verdict just adds pressure to the Arbery case as well from the public because of that acquittal. And there's this this emotion and, and pent up frustration. And now here we have something else to look to. But if you know if there's an acquittal in in Brunswick as well, you know what happens? Um, what what do people do? And that's something that Glynn County has been preparing for. Yeah. Emma, were you down there when the when the black pastors all came together? I was. Yeah. Yeah, I was. And that was that was a very um, powerful scene to to witness. But what was also very interesting was, you know, watching the defense attorney who basically, um, you know, his comments sparked this protest, then asking for a mistrial because of the noise and the presence of these pastors. So it was sort of people were worried about that, that this might be um, a risk of the gathering. But it was, um, you know, obviously people showed up anyway, and the mistrial was denied by the judge once again. Well, so, Adrian, you know, what's interesting is, as as, as uh, Emma first pointed out, we discussed, race has not been a part of the actual trial of uh, the McMichaels and Roddy Bryan. Um, and, but, but Kevin Goff, uh, Roddy Bryan's attorney, out, out of the jury's hearing, because he did all of this um, when the jury was uh, uh, not in the courtroom, has repeatedly uh, uh, brought race into the uh, discussion, saying he didn't want black pastors. We know that first infamous comment he made. But as recently as the end of last week, Adrian, he did it again in the aftermath of the gathering on Thursday. He once again asked the judge for a mistrial. And this time... He said what was going on outside the courtroom was a lynching. And he said just because there's not a noose doesn't mean that there's not an effort to lynch the defendants and deny them their justice. It, it, now, the prosecutor in the case says he's really smart. He's doing this all in an effort to get maybe a mistrial. He's got other motivations. But it, 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 it may be smart, but all it does is inflame racial tension. I, I'm I'm having a hard time with this characterization, um, and I'm having a hard time with this development generally. And part of it is that, um, to uh, Emma's point, I mean, we are living in two different worlds, right? The black community in the United States is experiencing the police and the vigilante system differently than uh, the majority of people here in the United States. It's historical, right? In the South, in particular, your police emerged from slave patrols, right? Black are cast as the boogeyman. Um, it is reasonable to um, engage with Black people to um, weaponize, for example, ministers in the courtroom to um, be able to defend oneself 
by claiming self-defense based upon fear, which in another arrangement would be completely unreasonable. I wrote an op-ed recently where I was suggesting that if three black homeowners tracked down a white jogger in their neighborhood and shot him to death, this would not even be the same story that we're talking about now. This is a different world. So whether they're talking about it in the courtroom or not, um, race is at issue here. And um, regardless of the outcome of these decisions, I think that we are in a moment where these two cases in particular are going to raise awareness, hopefully, um, for the good so that we might start to lean towards a more equitable system. Um, so, Tammy, uh, let me pick up on that and and point out one of the, you know, kind of expand on what Adrian's saying. In the Arbery case, obviously, we're talking about whether three white men viewed Ahmad Arbery because he is an African-American as being a threat simply because of his race. In the, in the Rittenhouse case, there was something else, I think, that was interesting. We know his victims, uh, which, we, which the judge said they could not be called in court. We, we know that his victims were not people of color. But the question in, in the Rittenhouse uh, case, w- whether it was part of the trial or not, is the question of why police officers let a young white man carrying an assault weapon walk through the streets gave him water at one point, apparently, we're told, urged him on. And, of course, the question is, had Kyle Rittenhouse been an African-American man, how might that have gone down? Right. So it's about representation. So it's consistent. Um, So, you know, these racial bias um, tests where um, you have flashes of different people and, you know, who's a threat, who isn't a threat. Um, and it, it goes to like an automatic trust that we have of white men in, in this country, where even in the uh, Aubrey case, that these individuals just said what was. And so the scope of what law enforcement did in terms of investigation was limited based on the information that those individuals stated, right? So there's this automatic trust toward these particular individuals and an automatic victimization that comes with being a white man, right? In these two cases in particular. So these particular individuals had weapons. Um, In the Arbery case, you had not only firearms, you had vehicles. And then in the Rittenhouse case, this man had um, a weapon, right? A military-grade weapon. So these individuals having these weapons then become the victims and then had to be able to defend themselves against unarmed individuals who did not have lethal weapons. So it's fascinating to see how you can be an aggressor yet a victim at the same time. And then um, by law enforcement, you are then in the legal system um, um, a victim. It's very interesting. And these people can't speak for themselves. Let's be clear. Right. Ahmaud Arbery cannot speak for himself. Right. The victims, the deceased victims in Wisconsin are not able to speak for themselves. So the, the victim that comes out are not the people that are no longer living. The victims then become the people who brought the firearms to an unarmed situation. 
Riley, let's talk about the political divide that was at play in, in both of these cases. We, I think in the Arbery case, it will be as well when the, once we get the uh, outcome. But in, in, we've learned since the verdict that um, the, there was a documentary film crew that was following Kyle Rittenhouse throughout this trial. And this was done on behalf of Tucker Carlson at Fox News. Tucker Carlson will have Kyle Rittenhouse on the air tonight. They'll show footage from this apparent documentary. Um, Tucker Carlson has already basically praised Kyle Rittenhouse for the way he was there to help protect people and property. And again, Mark Richards uh, Rittenhouse's attorney uh, said he never wanted the film crew around. He didn't like the fact that they were there. He said he kicked him out of a few uh, meetings that he felt were inappropriate for them to be engaged in. But let's face it, we're seeing the political divide here, the partisan divide between the way some conservatives and Democrats are responding uh, to this verdict. Well, Kyle Rittenhouse was and has been kind of this hero figure for the extreme deep red base, right? And it's for extreme conservative politicians like Matt Gates, like Marjorie Taylor Greene. They they played Kyle Rittenhouse as this this hero that was wrongly accused and, and did nothing wrong, right? And, and they're capitalizing that. We have, you know, the Tucker Carlson TV crew. They're capitalizing on his acquittal as that as if they, you know, their idea of him, their perception of him was right. You know, we have Donald Trump weighing in, calling him a hero. Um, it, it's definitely become a win for their extreme conservative base. And and to hear the attorney, the defense attorney's reaction to that, um, for me, I think that it's because, you know, it doesn't look great for Kyle Rittenhouse to be praised in this way after his acquittal, um, you know. And so it, you're, you're seeing this, like I touched on earlier, this extremism in politics playing out in the court system. And I would say this is another thing where the cases really diverge, because in Georgia, Republicans immediately, um, Republican leaders defended, um, you know, called called this, um, you know, decried this from the very moment the video came up. And then we saw policy change as a result. It was bipartisan. We saw a state hate crimes law be passed. Um, and we saw the citizens' arrest law be, you know, repealed and replaced. And and so that dynamic has not been at play in at least pro- among prominent politicians in Georgia at all. I think it's important. I'm really happy you said that Brian Kemp, the governor, came out very quickly once the video had been released and we saw what had happened and, and was very critical of the way it unfolded. As you point out, the hate crimes uh, law uh, uh, past citizens' arrest was modified. Um, so you're right. It's interesting that Republicans in Georgia uh, responded much, it, it, it very carefully and productively. Uh, what's going to be interesting is how national conservatives and liberals take up the cause in the aftermath of the uh, trial itself. Why don't we do this? What, let's get uh, the first break of the show out of the way. And uh, we got a lot more to talk about today on Political Rewind. We'll be right back.
Emma Hurt from Axios Atlanta, Riley Bunch from GPB News, Adrian Jones, Morehouse College, and Tammy Greer, Clark Atlanta University, join us for the show today. Hey, before we get back to the conversation, we have big news here at Political Rewind. We are welcoming to our staff today our new senior producer, Natalie Mendenhall. Natalie joins us from a stint in Milwaukee, where she was a producer of a morning news show up there. But she's from Chicago, so I have a particular fondness uh, for Natalie because we both grew up in the great, great city of Chicago. And uh, we'll, we'll have more to say about Natalie as time goes by. You'll all get to know her the way you have the people on our team. But Natalie, we're very happy you are with us starting today. Uh, let's take one more uh, look at the uh, both what's happening, what happened in Kenosha and what's happening uh, here. Riley, um, we already said that, of course, race plays a role in who carries a gun openly on the street. But the, just separate from race, this also has triggered more, had triggered, uh, pardon that, but was not meant as a pun, that has also inflamed tensions over gun laws. And, and so um, um, we are at a point where... Um, you know that in, in Kenosha, one of the charges against Kyle Rittenhouse was dropped because Wisconsin law set a length for a gun barrel before it could be illegal. And his was, I can't remember if it was shorter or longer, but he, that charge was dropped. And it does raise all sorts of questions about guns. Before I do that, Tammy Greer, did I misintroduce you coming back from the break? Oh, no, you're good. You're good. Oh, my gosh. I apologize for that. No, no, you're fine. No, you're fine. Uh, Adrian Jones pointed that out to me. Riley? Well, I mean, I think in in the South in particular, in the world where we're seeing expanded gun laws, right, we're also seeing how is the court handling these expanded gun laws. So it, it does the right to bear arms also equal the right to use deadly force if you're in a self-defense situation? Like these questions are coming up because we have, you know, this huge, huge push for Second Amendment rights. And, and we see different laws in different places. Um, so I think that, that, you know, the Rittenhouse case definitely brought up a lot of questions about how does the court grapple with these laws? And we should point out, Adrian, that all this comes as the Supreme Court's already heard the arguments and we'll get a ruling from them uh, probably in the spring over the New York carry uh, case uh, in which they will make a decision about just how free you are to carry a concealed weapon outside of your home and anywhere you want to carry it. That will be a crucial decision by the court coming up in the spring. I guess I have to say that no matter what the law is, it depends on how the law is enforced. Mm-hmm. Um, I was talking to my dad yesterday. He's black. He's 79. He's been living here in Georgia for years, a retiree of Emory University. And he was saying he's been watching Law and Order. And he realizes that it's not called law and justice for a reason. Um, and he coined this phrase yesterday, which is criminal order system, right? I mean, if I have a gun law that's supposed to protect me, is it going to be wielded in a way that does that, again, on a fair basis, based upon what is happening for people on the ground? And um, I would have to say that, you know, black people do not necessarily feel safe 
with the police and absolutely the Rittenhouse decision and likely the Arbery decision puts you further in a situation where you say, you know, is it safe for me to be outside? Um, you know, is there a freedom for people to attack me because I have been characterized as problematic regardless of what the law says? Emma, I can ima- I get the fact that these cases will, in fact, uh, it spark more debate about uh, gun laws. But the reality is here in Georgia, um, those are academic arguments. Um, we know that nothing is going to uh, come along or likely not going to come along that will change how Georgia legislators view uh, the uh, freedom that people have to carry guns virtually anywhere. And, you know, given the redistricting maps that have been passed, it doesn't seem that the Republican majority in the state House and Senate will change anytime soon as well. So, I mean, it's narrowed. It will narrow, but not not change. And I just can't stop thinking about the, the gun that was discharged at the airport over the weekend. And we heard from the TSA that 450 yep. weapons have been confiscated just in Atlanta in 2021. So... Yeah, I'm I'm glad you mentioned that because, Tammy, um, that's exactly where I want to go with this for a moment. Um, The gun that was discharged accidentally, we the it is now legal to carry a gun in the general uh, terminal uh, in baggage claim wherever a ticketing in the airport. But, of course, the feds take control once you reach the TSA check lines. And from that point on, it is illegal to carry a weapon. But the fact is that the state of Georgia has made it uh, easy for people to bring a gun into the airport, um, and it's only the feds that are stopping them from taking them on airplanes. Right. So, um, which is very interesting because there's literally a thin line between state control and federal control at the airport. Um, but but I, I have to circle back, if I could, to the Republicans in Georgia's response to the Arbery case. Because, um, you know, there was, the discussion was after the video came out. So before the video came out, which was months after the incident, the word of three individuals on one, right, three against one, was automatically accepted. Not only that, those particular individuals, two of them, who had a history with law enforcement and the county uh, prosecutor's office inside of Glen County had like unfettered trust. So, so when we talk about, you know, the political reaction to this, we have to put it in context that only because there was video evidence was there an outrage against the actions against these three individuals. Prior to the video evidence, it was like a no case kind of situation, yep. only if yep. you're in social justice circles inside of Georgia did it make sense. So I, yep. I hearing the um, the understanding um, how guns play a role, I think there's an overemphasis, um, particularly for those individuals who claim to be uh, on the side of law enforcement, because how can we be on the side of law enforcement if everyone else has been deputized under citizens arrest or under under these other laws that gives them abilities and power of law enforcement and then law enforcement the real law enforcement then um, because of the law accepts citizens um, ability to form their own militia 
Um, therefore, it's almost like there are two different types of enforcement agencies within the, this country. And we have to figure out what do we actually want um, for the masses rather than what feels good in the moment for those that vote for us. All right. Um, thank you all for a very robust conversation about both the Rittenhouse case and the um, uh, Arbery murder case. Um, we will watch very carefully, obviously, to see how this proceeds. So will uh, all of the news organizations, obviously, not just in Georgia, but around the country. But as I said, we can only guess this, but it is quite possible, quite possible, depending on how efficient they are today down in that courtroom in Brunswick, that the jury could have the case as soon as late today, if not, I would guess, uh, tomorrow morning. And who knows? how quickly they will reach a verdict. It will be one of the most important stories we'll all cover uh, in 2021. And that's saying a lot, given what the news has been in 2021. Why don't we do this? This is as good a time as any, uh, because we have other things we're going to move on to talk about uh, to take our final break of the show. So let's get that out of the way and come back with this terrific panel in just a moment. We're back on uh, Political Rewind uh, with Tammy Greer, correctly introduced this time, from Clark Atlanta, Adrian Jones Morehouse, (laughs) (laughs) Emma Hurt from Axios Atlanta, and Riley Bunch from here at GPB uh, News. Uh, Riley, maybe you can help us with this. Um, We mentioned on the show last night that um, Republican legislator, House member Jan Jones, Uh, was going to announce that she was going to introduce legislation to assure that no obscene materials were uh, 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 distributed or available in Georgia's schools. I don't recall if someone on the show called it a book ban or not. Maybe someone did. And we got tweeted at by a couple of uh, Republican legislators saying, what are you talking about? It's not a ban. What, What can you tell us about this effort, which, of course is going on in other states as well. Well, I think it's first important to say that we've seen this push slightly in Georgia before, and it's an effort to limit book ban or not, however you want to call it. It's an effort to limit, quote, obscene materials in schools. um, The legislation that we have seen in Georgia before, I think it was about last last session, I believe it was, um, put stricter requirements on teachers and librarians about the types of things that they could keep in in their classrooms and in their libraries. And that legislation did not get anywhere. It didn't even pass out of committee. But the interesting context of this push in Georgia that we just saw a tweet of, we haven't seen, you know, anything else about it. We just saw um, Jan Jones tweet that she was pushing this is a nationwide trend by Republicans that we are saying to limit things that we're seeing in classrooms, particularly linked to race and critical race theory and things like that. Um, so it is not surprising to see that this will likely come up in the in the regular legislative session um, and in this new national contest that GOP lawmakers are, are, you know, pushing this across the country. Emma? Yeah, there was, um, I saw the release of a policy platform for 2022 from a new um, conservative advocacy group, Frontline Policy Action, sort of the next generation of family policy alliance. And they have included 
you know, banning obscene material and critical race theory in their platform. And in their release, they immediately reference the Glenn Youngkin race in Virginia, sure. which is, you know, the, the political context we have here, that that strategy won um, a, a statewide competitive race in Virginia. Yeah, um, Adrian, uh, that's right. Glenn Youngkin uh, focused attention on parental involvement with schools. He said parents need more of a say in what their children are taught. And we know Terry McAuliffe made one of the worst unforced errors in politics in 2021 when he criticized the notion that parents should have anything to do with what their children learn. Uh, But, of course, race did play a role in that because uh, Yankin and his people focused on Toni Morrison's Pulitzer Prize-winning novel, Beloved, which is a very difficult – I mean, there's no question that Beloved is a very emotionally raw book that um, rep- reports on one of the most horrifying periods of American history and the way slavery affected the lives of, uh, of, of p- the enslaved people of the day. So – I get that there are parents who would find it really difficult, uh, but the suggestion is that it's an obscene book. Well, I'm very disappointed um, that they're trying to merge uh, the CRT with the word obscenity, right? In my mind, no one can deny that Beloved has literary um, and artistic value. Um, and, you know, according to the Supreme Court, it's got to be, um, it's got to violate contemporary community standards. It's got to um, patently offend and its depiction of sex, <coughs> a piece of art does. And it, you know, it has to lack literary um, content. And we know that Beloved absolutely has that. And so I think that the design here is to conflate the word obscenity, obscene, um, which is extremely problematic to lit, work with literary value that needs to be read in the American school system, despite the difficulty of a book like Beloved. Um, we also saw this book, Gender Queer Mentioned, which I haven't read or seen myself, but I'm gonna venture to say that um, folks would argue that this has some literary, artistic, political, or scientific value. Um, and so these things need to be kept in the school system and they need to be not described repetitively as obscene because after just a few clicks, um, that's gonna be understood by people as a truth and reality of the world that we're living in. Tammy, this let, for me is problematic. I apologize. Tammy, why don't you weigh in on this before we move on? Sure, um, I got sad in my heart because a lot of these books, um, I actually read in high school um, and we had uh, deep substantive conversations where we understood other people who live differently than we do. Um, and that's part of fiction, right? In order to expand empathy um, of communities that we are not from, from time periods that um, we don't have any uh, uh, ancestors alive in our, in our spaces who can explain context of the day. So it's, it's um, sad that we would go ahead and put away items that make us uncomfortable um, because we are afraid of learning someone else's truth and someone else's plight. Um, so I, I think it's, um, 
it, it brings us into a different space where we are molding and shaping or attempting to um, to have um, you know upcoming scholars that only think a particular way and not and are afraid to think of others. You know, Riley, one of the things I don't know whether you happen to have read Beloved or not. Um, I, it's I think one of the most important novels that I ever read. What I find really kind of another aspect of this that's interesting is Beloved is a really, without regard to the content, a very difficult read. I mean, Toni Morrison is masterful in the way that she puts this story together. You really don't quite, you, you have to really be thinking as you read this book. So if nothing beyond, uh, I mean, the content is this fact that it is a challenging mental exercise for a student, a high school student, a college student. Well, I mean, I think that begs the question is who is deciding what books get to be read and who is deciding what books don't get to be read, right? You know, the teacher should have authority of um, what kind of material they want to share with their students in the classroom, you know. And and this also puts you know, a, a big pressure and kind of fear for teachers, right? Because now they are not the ones that are making the decision of what is okay to teach students, what is at the benefit of students to learn, right? So, and, and I think that um, it will be interesting to see if legislation does come up in the next session, how things are defined and what should be okay and what shouldn't be. Okay. Um, thank you for that. We'll watch that. That won't, We certainly aren't going to see that any in the special session, which is coming to a close, but apparently uh, Republicans will introduce that legislation starting in January when the regular session gets underway. Um, late last week, um, OSHA... Uh, which uh, monitors uh, safety in the workplace and which was tasked with uh, carrying out the Biden mandates uh, for workplace vaccines. Any any business with more than 100 employees would be required to have their people vaccinated uh, with few exceptions by uh, early January. And OSHA uh, said we're suspending our enforcement of this because the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals, which is out of New Orleans and which is genuinely, generally regarded as a, the most conservative appeals court in the country, uh, stayed the order. And um, Linda Greenhouse, who is a brilliant interpreter of uh, the Supreme Court at the New York Times, covered them for years, now writes for the Times uh, as a, a retired uh, reporter, but who still comes back and writes said this, a rogue court is on the loose in the country. No, not the Supreme Court. It's the United States Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit, and it's out of control. And she suggests that the stay that they issued was an example of just that, that it was a political uh, decision. Um, Adrian, uh, weigh in on this uh, case because because we here we go. We're entering the holiday period. There's more concern than ever about people being vaccinated. And one of the things the Fifth Circuit said was they're not quite convinced that this is really a matter of workplace safety. They think this is a way for the Biden administration to have its political agenda to get people vaccinated enacted. I mean, you know, I, that I object to that. Um, 
you know, I think it's important that we tamp down on the ability of the COVID and the Delta virus to mutate and continue to infect people. So, um, you know, I pulled the vaccination issue completely out of the political sphere, um, despite what's been happening this year. Um, so I have a problem with the Fifth Circuit saying that and not necessarily looking at the powers of the executive branch or of Congress to actually make these kinds of mandates in situations when um, the public and the economy, um, which involves you know things that are happening in between the states, um, is occurring. Um, so, but I think the Fifth Circuit situation is a good example of why we need to be paying attention to who our elected officials are, paying attention to who is appointed as judges on these federal circuits. Um, you know the the political leanings of several of the courts of appeals have shifted um, during our last president's tenure, including on the Fifth Circuit. Um, and so we can be certain that we're going to have to continue to deal with these kind of decisions where uh, we probably are not in agreement with what the Fifth Circuit um, and similar courts are saying. So uh, this becomes uh, – this is of national importance, obviously, but, Tammy, it also is of, of importance here in the state of Georgia – because Governor Kemp and Attorney General Chris Carr have joined uh, several different lawsuits uh, opposing the Biden vaccine mandate, one in terms of health care workers, the other in terms of businesses. Um, so uh, this state has a stake in how these cases are heard moving forward, Tammy. Absolutely. And, and to understand the criticalness of the, the different circuits, um, which circuit is friendly to which political uh, leaning sometimes um, instead of the merits of the case or um, to look at the powers of the executive branch from a federal standpoint and then um, what is the safety and security of the citizens of this country. So it's very, very fascinating to see how, um, how and why. Um, I'm very curious how and why when it comes to those with um, conservative-leaning ideologies, will continue to rail against um, the safety of individuals when you see large proportions of um, people in rural spaces or spaces who have conservative leanings are impacted by um, this virus. So it's very fascinating as to why we're holding this stance against um, coronavirus, why are we holding this stance against health and safety of, of the people? This is very interesting to me. Riley? Just to throw in a, a quick comparison, I think that, you know, it's interesting to see this similarity in the way that public health decisions are being politicized the same way as elections were, and now it's being played out in court. And I think that's really, really important, you know, to watch the um, outcomes of these cases kind of similar in the way that we're watching the outcomes of the election lawsuits and seeing how that is dealt with as these big ideological questions playing out in the court system. So, Emma, to close out this part of the conversation, one of the things that Linda Greenhouse points out that I thought was interesting, um, when there are multi-jurisdictional cases like the lawsuits from many states, Republican states, challenging the Biden mandate, the way that the federal court system works is it tries to consolidate these cases and then holds a lottery to determine which uh, circuit in the United States will hear the trial. Um, the Fifth Circuit, 
you know, is notoriously, as we've said, conservative. So one of the things Greenhouse points out is that the fact that the Fifth Circuit in New Orleans issued a stay was startling to her because by the time they did that, a lottery had already been held on the consolidation of these law cases, and they were all going to be heard in Cincinnati. She suggests that reveals a political intention by the Fifth Circuit. They should have just let it all go to Cincinnati, which is an interesting argument. Yeah, and you know, I mean, the politicization of this is just seems intractable at this point here. And I'm going to throw in some random information, but I was in Germany on a fellowship for two months earlier this year. And the situation in Germany right now is pretty, is getting pretty scary. There are parts of the country going back into lockdown, parts of Austria going back into lockdown and nearly half of the people who are hospitalized there are fully vaccinated. And so we have this political debate going on and um, you know, lawsuits back and forth, but COVID still hangs over our head um, very strongly. And we know that cases, we don't want to be alarmist, cases are beginning to tick up a bit uh, here in Georgia and in other states as well. So um, before we run out of time completely, uh, I want to get your take, uh, Riley, quickly on uh, the congressional redistricting, which I believe we are likely to see the full how we know that they've already uh, passed and sent to the governor legislative redistricting for both the house and senate the senate's passed the congressional map the house presumably will take it up and pass it today it gives the republican party the chance to pick up one additional seat they'll go after lucy mcbath in the sixth uh district and um it's going to be interesting to see how that plays out does lucy mcbath Try to try to win in a district that's going to be more Republican. Does she go over to the seventh? We just don't know how the, what the next steps are going to be on that. Well, redistricting is coming to a close for better or for worse. And yes, we you know Republicans are playing the long game and they're picking up seats where the stakes are highest and they're they're picking up a seat in Congress and you know where there, there's this battle for control versus losing a couple seats on the state level. Um, so it, it's, it's definitely a long game. They'll have these maps for 10 years and Republicans are, they're keeping control. Uh, we should point out though, Emma, that when it came to the legislative, legislative maps, the house at least recognized that Democrats are picking up, uh, a need to pick up territory. They're going to gain six seats potentially, uh, in the house map. Yes. Um, that's true. Districts are smaller, kind of harder to, to make that work. Um, but at the congressional level that, you know, as, as Riley outlined, it seems to be the, the next couple of years of Georgia's political future. And Emma Hurt gets the last word on today's packed show on Political Rewind. Emma, thank you for being here from Axios Atlanta. Adrian Jones, Tammy Greer, Riley Bunch, thanks for a terrific conversation. Uh, Sam Burmis-Dawes, Sarah Callis, Jesse Neiswanger, and yes, our new senior producer, uh, who is also here, Natalie Mendenhall. Thank you for your work today. We're out of time. We're back again with a new show tomorrow. In the meantime, I'm Bill Nygut. Please take care and stay healthy. Bye, everybody.